All right, we're in our fourth week of the series entitled Thrive, and we're talking about human flourishing, how God wants us to flourish and what his ideas are about human flourishing. The premise is that every part of our lives is spiritual. Everything in your life is spiritual. And here, so here's what we've been saying. You're not a human being having a temporary spiritual experience. You are a spiritual being having a temporary human experience. That there is a day when Jesus will return and the heavens and the earth will be rolled back. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and, and what is spiritual will be revealed. And, but, but it's so important for us to see how everything in our lives matters as part of our, our experience as a Christian, as a believer in God. C.S. Lewis said it this way, the brilliant uh, author and, and um, uh, uh, theologian, he said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. And I think this is so true because every area of our lives is influenced by the spiritual dynamics of what's going on in our lives. Every area has spiritual implications. The way you define and, and deal with your marriage, the way we raise our kids, the way we work, the, the friendships we choose, the morality that, that we embrace, the integrity of our lives, all are spiritual concepts and have spiritual influence. And so today we're going to talk about spirituality uh, as it is... Uh, as it is regarding our money. We are going to ask the question, how do we thrive in our finances? How do we flourish with what God has given us? So somebody asked uh, Willie Sutton, the famous uh, bank robber, why do you rob so many banks? Why have you robbed so many banks? And he said, well, because that's where the money is. <laughs> I think I think this is I think this is like on one sense like oh duh but in another sense I think all of us are often drawn to wherever the money is wherever the money is that's where we gravitate very often that's what drives our career wherever the money is that's where we that's where we gravitate we're not thinking about following God as much as we're thinking about following the money and so we have to think about this because I think um, our careers, our hearts, our focus, all of our material possessions can have a profound effect on us if we're not careful, and we, we stop following God, and it happens in a subtle, slow slipping away, and everything else begins to take over. And so I, I want to challenge you today to think about how money works, because really money is just a, a currency of exchange. You know, there's not a lot of people that I, I know who really love the money for the smell of the paper it's printed on. <laughs> it's like, oh, I just love this money. I have to keep it. I can't give it. No, it, they love money because of what it is exchanged for what it can afford you in your life. And so money's not necessarily good or bad. A scripture we're going to read here in a moment is going to talk about the love of money and how, how bad that is, to let the love of money consume your soul. Because here's what I want you to understand. God wants you to be blessed. He's, he's not really interested in you being broke all the time. He's not interested in you necessarily being poor, but he knows that materialism if it infects you and influences you and gets a hold of your heart, it can really ruin a human. And listen, you can be rich and it influences you and you can be, in, you can be poor and it infects you. 
And so what we need is Jesus to come and save us, rescue us, help us to see a new way of living, a new way to handle what God gives us. And so, um, so for many people, they're looking for security, they're looking for, for fulfillment, but here's, here's the interesting thing, all right? God says to you, I'll make you into someone. I'll change you, make you into someone. Guess what? Money says the same thing to you. God says, I'll make you secure. I'll give you security. Money says the same thing to you. God says, I'll provide for you. That's exactly what money tries to tell you. I'll provide everything you need. Here's the interesting thing. Money offers everything God can except without the moral restraint. And it's without relationship. It's a thing. And so can we take money and not use it against God? That's the good question. Can we have money? You know, in God we trust is on our money. Can we trust God and have money at the same time? That's really the question. And so we're going to look at some of this today and, and ask what Jesus, what do you say about this? How does the scriptures outline what we should do as God's people and how we deal with money? Here's how Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew 6, uh, 19 through 21. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them. In other words, everything wears out. In other words, everything in your house is going through a process of becoming garbage. You can move in a really nice couch, but in a very few short, few short years, it will be garbage and it will be moved back to the garage. Everything in the world is in the process of becoming garbage, run down, terrible. He says, don't store for yourselves treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths, rust and, where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. This verse says that the greatest test of all of our hearts is what we do with our treasures. The greatest measure of what's in our heart comes with how we deal with what we treasure and what we do with it. A lot of people misquote this verse by talking about how where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. That's an incorrect quote. They misquote it. Notice what Jesus says. He said, it's your treasure that directs your heart, not the other way around. Whatever you treasure, so wherever you put your money, whatever you do with your money, that's gonna, where your heart's going to gravitate. And so this is, a, this is a subtle thing that we have to really get because that's why, that's why the treasures that the Bible talks about so important that we focus our attention, our heart, and our soul, and our lives on treasures that are, we're going to take with us to heaven, on people and ideas rather than places and things. So three lies about money. Here we go. Three lies about money. Number one, things will bring you happiness. Things bring happiness. It's a lie. Happiness is always a byproduct of a greater purpose. If you choose happiness as your goal and you consistently and constantly trying to achieve your own happiness, you will be greatly disappointed. Happiness always comes as a byproduct of some greater goal. 
something, a greater good. In fact, it is, there's a, an amazing statistics about how giving and generosity create happiness in people. And, and so there's a, there's a process here. Things don't bring happiness. Number two, there are no consequences for debt. <laughs> Lie number two, there are no consequences for debt. Fi- now listen, financial freedom is a game changer for life. How you feel, how driven you are at work, the pressure on your marriage, the way you make decisions, how able you are to take advantage of the opportunities that come to you. There is a cost for debt. A li- number three, the third lie is a little more money would solve my problem. If I just had a little bit more. Research tells us that most households tend to spend 10% more than their income no matter what their income level. In other words, the vast majority of people, whether they're rich or, or, or poor, they spend a little more than they really should. We're always thinking, oh, if I just had a little bit more money. It's not true. It's a lie. I know someone once said, whoever says money can't buy happiness doesn't know where to shop. <laughs> but it's not true. Things don't buy happiness. There's consequences with debt. And there's a, there's, it's not true that a little more money will solve your problem. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Is money important to God? You bet it is. It's the second most number of references in the Bible. Money, stewardship, and giving, the second most number of references in the Bible. In the New Testament alone, look at the New Testament, check this out. Faith and believing referred to 272 times. Prayer referred to 371 times. Love and kindness referred to 741 times. Kindness is kind of a big deal. Question isn't should you be kind, it's how do you become kind? There's a miracle behind it. It's the same question about money. Money, giving, and sharing is referred to 2,172 times in the New Testament. It's a big subject. It is the thing that grips our hearts like no other. And so it's important to God. So I want to introduce to you the financial Ten Commandments. The financial Ten Commandments. And just like the original Ten Commandments, they are impossible to obey without the Spirit of God functioning in your life, without you having a transformation of your soul and your heart, about, uh, without a change in the way you see money and the way you see God's work in your life. All right, so that's what we need. But when that happens, this is how you respond. When God makes a change in your perspective, these are the things that will naturally begin to come alive to you. Number one, you ready? Are you ready? Thou shalt work hard. Thou shalt work hard. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. You can work for God or you can work for men. That's really what the choice is here. 
the benefits with the Lord are much greater. Work for God or work for money. There's something here about working that is so foundational to who we are as humans. God put humans in the garden in a perfect world and he gave them a job. He asked them to work the garden, take care of it. Work is honorable. It is good for us. It is meaningful. It's important to our development as, uh, as human beings. It's important for our flourishing. We, f we are created to work. But we got to work with the right motivation. And you don't work for your boss who you despise <laughs> or even who you love. You work for God. The way you work, God determines how you work, what kind of integrity you have in that work, and your work ethic. All right, number two. Number two, thou shalt establish a plan. Thou shalt establish a plan. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Here's what he's saying. If there's no plan, no vision, then there is no discipline. There's no discipline. There's, there's no giving in to this plan. The people cast off restraint. Here's another idea for you in this passage. If you're married and you're trying to figure out how to work with the money you've got, there can be no agreement if there's no plan. There's no oneness if there's not a plan. If you're just spending here and spending there and you're just trying to kind of move, move forward and what, whatever you need at the time, no, you need a plan. Everyone needs a plan for how money will be spent. Prioritize, set goals. The man who fails to plan, plans to fail. That's right. So my wife and I, we started including another person in our lives to help us with this kind of thing because getting a budget together has been very hard for us. It's very challenging throughout our years together. And, and so we've invited another person into our lives so that when she comes to me and says something like, um, Ross, I think we need, we, we need some new bedspreads for the kids. And I respond to her and I say, oh, sweetheart, I would love nothing more. I, I love bedspreads. They just make you feel so warm and toasty and they're so pretty. I love bedspreads. They make the room come alive. Bedspreads, they are, I just, I love beds. You think I'm kidding, but in our family, I'm the one who loves bedspreads. I love bedspreads. She's like, we gotta buy bedspreads for the kids. Well, I, I would love nothing more than to buy bedspreads, but we're gonna have to check with Mr. Budget. Yes, Mr. Budget is our third person. Mr. Budget is the person within our family. And we go to Mr. Budget and we say, Mr. Budget, can we buy some bedspreads? And Mr. Budget typically says, no. <laughs> Not only no, no, he doesn't say that. <laughs> but, he's, but he says, but Mr. Budget, sometimes he'll say, well, yes, you've got a little money here. You can go ahead and buy some beautiful bedspreads from Target. <laughs> Mr. Budget is a very useful tool in a family, in a marriage. Go ahead and invite him in. Number three, thou shalt avoid debt like the plague. Thou shalt avoid debt like the plague. Proverbs 22, 26 through 27 says, do not be a man who strikes hands in pledge or puts up security for debts. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. 
When you borrow, you put things in danger. It's just the truth. It's just the way it is. I've been in debt. I've been free from debt. <laughs> Being free from debt is better. <laughs> I can just tell you. There is, and this is something that's so profound for us in American culture. It's challenging for us, I believe, when we've got so many things speaking to us about what, um, what, what we need or what we want. But debt, here's what it does. It mortgages your future. In, in other words, it borrows from what is coming instead of preparing for what is coming. So instead of preparing for something to happen, you're borrowing from the future and you're not ready when there's an opportunity. And so I know this is a hard concept. It can be challenging for all of us in our culture. So I, I found this little video that I think will help us really get it. All right, let's watch this little video together. I just can't get these numbers to add up. Like we're never gonna get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? <laughs> Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. <laughs> you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Hmm, sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in chapter three. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. Now I'm really confused. It's a little confusing at first. Well, what if you have the money? Can you buy something? Yes. Now take the money away. Same story? Nope. You shouldn't buy stuff when you don't have the money. I think I got it. I buy something I want and then hope that I can pay for it, right? <laughs> no, you make sure you have money, then you buy it. Oh, then you buy it. But shouldn't you buy it before you have the money? No. Why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. <laughs> the advice is priceless and the book is free. Wow, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. <laughs> so get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. And if you order now, you'll also receive Seriously. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. Along with a 12-month subscription to Stop Buying Stuff magazine. So order today. <laughs> I just love that. Um, I think that describes our culture so well. And I could hear the nervous laughter in the room. But here's the thing, we actually have at One Chapel a program that we do take people through. It's called Financial Peace University and it gets people out of debt. I wanna tell you a little bit about it. Some of you have been through it. 1.5 million people have been through Financial Peace University and it's incredible. The average family pays off $5,300 of debt and saves 2,700 in the first 90 days. Some of you are like, how is it possible? 
It's an incredible process that Financial Peace University takes you through in, in how to deal with your money in God's way. And so we've done 11 classes here over our time at One Chapel. And so 174 people have gone through it. 107 families have gone through it. There's 120 credit cards that have been paid off, which is pretty awesome. But that's not the best thing. There's been $334,000 in debt paid off and 269,000 put in savings. People, that's a $600,000 swing. That is incredible, amazing. So here's the thing, this semester, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. right here in this room, we're gonna have Financial Peace University. It's gonna be led by Spiro Stavros and Rudy Gates. They are great guys. They really have a handle on it and, and can really help you work through the process of how to make sure that you don't fall into the trap and the temptation of debt. All right, you ready to go on? Number four, thou shalt distinguish between wants and needs. Thou shalt distinguish between wants and needs. Philippians 4.11 says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, Paul says. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Listen, you can do it. Needs have to do with the basic requirements, food, shelter, clothing. There are people in our nation who do have trouble with this, all right? But, but most people in our nation are not choosing between their needs and wants. They, they're, want, they're choosing between wants, and wants involve choices about the quality and quantity of goods to be used, in other words, you're the kind of person that has champagne taste, but you're on a beer budget. <laughs> here's, the, here's what this verse says. This verse says, contentment from God comes from God, not from things. And I, I ran across this little, um, this little reading here, and I want to read it to you. I want you to listen to it. It says, money will buy a bed, but not sleep. Books, but not brains. Food, but not appetite. Finery, but not beauty. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Luxuries, but not culture. Amusements, but not happiness. Religion, but not salvation. A passport to everywhere, but heaven. I think it's so important in our nation where we are bombarded with marketing about what we need. It's not true. Most of the time, we're just dealing with what we want. So distinguish between those two things, and that will give you a healthy view of money. Number five, thou shalt develop a lifestyle of giving. Once you start defining between wants versus needs, you can start actually helping someone in need. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 13 says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows generously will also reap generously. This is a law of the universe. Tight-fisted people, they end up being selfish and full of themselves. Open-handed people end up being generous and open-hearted. Each man 
Verse 7 says, should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, worth reading one more time, to make all grace abound to you. When you become a generous person, when you become a giver, there's something that God does. He makes all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every great work. He makes the, the work work for you. And so there's something so powerful here. Generosity reveals God's character. It reveals who he is because God so loved the world that he gave. And now, I think there's something here that the Bible describes from beginning to its end about giving that is so powerful. It's called tithing. And I want to talk about it here for a second because tithing is like training wheels for becoming generous. <laughs> it's like training wheels for becoming a generous giver. And so here's the concept of tithing. It is pre-law. It wasn't written in the law. It was pre-law. It happened with Abraham. It happened in a relationship between God and Abraham. And in the succeeding generations, there was a practice of giving to God the first and best of what they had. Everybody say first and best. They gave God the first and best. For people who had a sheep or a goat, they would give an unblemished, spotless lamb as the first offering to the Lord. They would give it to him, and they would sacrifice it, and there would be an offering that we don't really understand in our modern society because most of us aren't farmers, most of us aren't shepherds, we're not herders, we, we, we have a... a, a a different way of thinking about it because all we deal with is money. But to the, to the person who was a shepherd who had a herd of sheep and goats, taking the first best one meant he was giving to God something that could produce a whole bunch more really good sheep. It wasn't just the sheep that was giving up. They were giving up the, the prospect of breeding that would produce a whole bunch more. There's a thing here that we have to understand. There's a trust that developed in tithing between God and humans. And so if you were a farmer, you would take the crops that you got and the first and best of your crops, you would offer them to God. You would take them to the temple. You would offer them to the Levites. There's, there's this process within the scriptures. Jesus, it, Jesus reaffirms it in Matthew 23, the practice of tithing. Here, let me, let me just help you understand. When you give to God first, the principle is whatever you do with the first thing, it influences the next. Whatever happens to the first determines what happens with the rest. And God wants to bless the first, right? He wants you to bless the first by giving it to him so that he blesses the rest, right? That's what, that's what the goal is. And so there's this journey that we're in where we're trying to figure out how can we live like this. And so a tithe, some of you are like, what is a tithe? Tithe means tenth. It means a tenth of your income. And I, I want you to see some statistics here. Some of you are thinking, a tenth? How could I give 10% of my, of my money to God? That seems impossible. No, it is not impossible. It is something that 
actually has no law attached to it. It's about love. It's not a have to. It's a get to because God knows how quickly money can grip us. And so when you give away what's first and you give away the best to him, what it is saying is, okay, God, I trust you. And you know why God made it a percentage? Because it's the same for everybody. It's the same for everybody. It's, it's, this, it's this opportunity for us to interact with God and to trust him and to say, okay, God, I trust you for everything that I receive. And I don't know about you, but I would rather believe that God is, I would rather do something that, that allows God to work with me and for me rather than just rely on me to produce everything. In other words, God can do more with, in your life with your 90% than you can do with your 100%. So there's a really powerful idea here, but here's some statistics, all right? What, what is this tithing thing? Only 5% of the U.S. tithes. Those are the statistics. I looked them up. With 80% of Americans only giving 2% of their income. And so ever, a normal average congregation, there's anywhere from 10% to 25% of people tithe right? It's just 10% to a quarter. But Christians are only giving at a rate of 2.5% per capita right now. I read this. In the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. Because it was, it, was, it was more part of their life. What would happen if believers were to increase their giving to a minimum of, let's say, 10%? What would happen? What could happen? There would be, by the calculations... By these numbers, there would be an additional 165 billion, with a B, billion dollars for churches to use and to distribute. 165 billion. That's a lot. It's not as much as the government is in debt, I know, but it, is, but it is a lot of money. Now, what could you do with 165 billion? 25 billion could relieve global hunger and starvation and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. 12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. 15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically at places in the world where 1 billion people live on less than $1 a day. 1 billion could fully fund all overseas missions work. 100, between 100 and 110 billion would still be left over for additional ministry expansion. We could, we could meet in somewhere else other than a commercial office building. Not that this is bad. I'm grateful for it. The ceiling's a little low. But this just gives you a picture. The way God set it up is God's people. Everybody participates. Everybody gives a little bit. And then his work begins to be established. And not only is his work established, but your life changes. And you might be thinking, I can't do this. Well, here's what I would tell you. Start with 1%. Start with 1%. Calculate 1% in the first month, then 2% in the second month, 3% in the third month, 4% in the fourth month, and go all the way 10 months in. I promise you, something will have changed in your heart and your finances. I was just talking to a girl the other day and she was telling me about practicing this. She did it. She went for 10 months and she was tithing. She never thought it was even possible for her. And her, you could tell her heart was different. Her disposition was different. It was changed. It's an incredible thing. Here's what Winston Churchill said. He says, you make a living by what you get. 
but you make a life by what you give. I want us to be givers. I want us to be generous, but it starts with a practice of, of giving to God. Number six, number six, thou shalt not try get-rich-quick schemes. <laughs> Proverbs 28, 19 says, he who works his land will have abundant food, but the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. A faithful man will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. God rewards faithfulness and diligence, not laziness and opportunism. All right? The purchasing Powerball lottery tickets is not a great plan for long-term wealth. It's not a great plan. And if it sounds too good to be true... It probably is, all right? So that's so important. Don't violate the law of the farm by believing the lie of the city. You know what the lie of the city is? You can have it right now. You can get it anywhere you want. You know what the law of the farm is? Everything takes a long time. Number eight, oh, seven. Number seven, thou shalt not keep up with the Joneses. Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is one of the original Ten Commandments. Check this out. God wants us not to compare ourselves with each other. He wants us to compare ourselves with his will and his desires. And so you got to find your significance in God before you find it in how you stack up to the Joneses. And I mean, I, I, all of us suffer this. You know what really bugs me? If you live in a neighborhood, maybe with, a, with, a, with garages where your garage goes up and then you see the guy next door who has every tool known to mankind perfectly situated within his tool bench and on hanging on his walls, I hate that guy. Actually, I love that guy. I envy him. I want what he, what he has. But listen, that doesn't help you. It doesn't help me. We have to find our significance in God. Don't let material things define you. The pressure to let them define you will get you into debt. And coveting or envy or jealousy of other people, you know what it says to God? It says, I'm not satisfied with what you've given me. That's what it says. I'm not satisfied with you. I need, I deserve this. I want this. And I don't think you're giving it to me. Here's, here's, a, here's a little sentence that I think will kind of sum it up. Measure wealth not by the things you have, but by the things you have for which you would not take money. Number eight, thou shalt not make major financial decisions without getting wise counsel first. <laughs> Proverbs 15, 22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Ask for help. Here's the secret. Ask for help before the crisis comes. Don't wait. Take Financial Peace University now. If you're a young couple just getting married, if you're a single person trying to figure out how to move forward in your life, take FPU and develop relationships with mentors who are older than you, have made more money than you, who can help you figure it out how to see it the way God sees it. I train my kids. You're, here's what we do as a family. Here's what Parsley's do. We, we tithe 10% and we save 10%. Tithe 10%, save 10%. If you do that all your life, you will have no problems. You can choose any number of other investment plans and other things, but if you'll do those two things really well, then you'll see God multiply it in your life. So 
I'm, we're, we're, we're parents who think that kids, it's okay to work through college, so we allow our kids to work through college. Notice how I said that. We allow them to have the experience. I think it's good for them to help own it. All right, so um, here it is. I want to train them. So here's the next point. Number nine, thou shalt not corrupt your kids with money. Thou shalt not corrupt your kids with money. Psalm 37 says, I was young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be blessed. Kids need to see the hard work that goes into work and, and, and making money and making sure that there's provision. They need to see generosity towards others and they need to witness the blessing. We need to teach our kids these principles. Um, you know, Zach and Taylor and now Grace, they've all had to buy uh, gas for their own cars and, and they need to go through their own struggle and their own work. And, and, and our kids have taken the risk with us of one chapel. They took the risk to leave a really comfy job six years ago and they started and they've owned it. They've served in kids, they've worked and they've watched God put the pieces together. It's incredible for them. They have faith for what God is going to do in their lives because of what they've seen us go through. Number 10, thou shalt not orient your whole life around money. Thou shalt not orient your whole life around money. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Notice what this says. You cannot serve both. You have to choose one. Both of them cannot be in charge. Only one can be in charge. Here's what Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the, of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life and why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow's thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Order creates capacity. When you seek God first, you get more room for him to add stuff. It's really true with our money. Invest in people, invest in ideas, not just places and things. Put your stuff aside here for a moment. I want the band to come and, and we're gonna come to the Lord's table, but I wanna read you one more thing from A.W. Tozer, brilliant author and, and theologian. And I want you just to listen to this. He says, money, comes, money often comes between men and God. Someone has said that you can take two small 10-cent pieces, just 
two dimes and shut out the view of a panoramic landscape. Go to the mountains and just hold two coins closely in front of your eyes. The mountains are still there, but you cannot see them at all because there's a dime shutting out the vision in each eye. It doesn't take large quantities of money to come between us and God. Just a little, placed in the wrong position, will effectively obscure our view. It doesn't take a lot of money to obscure the view. And that's why it's not about rich or poor. It's about all of us being willing to give our hearts to God. I want you to close your eyes and bow your head.